Chapter Nine of An English Woman Sergeant in the Serbian Army by Flora Sands. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Marianne. Chapter Nine. We go to Corfu. We remained near Durazzo for a month. The men resting and recuperating after their hard time. There were a lot of young recruits who had been brought through with the army from Serbia, but who had not yet been formally sworn in. And one morning the ceremony took place. The whole regiment was formed up in a square in the centre of which stood the priest with a table in front of him, on which were a bowl of holy water, with a bunch of leaves beside it, a Serbian Bible, and a large brass cross. All the officers were drawn up in a double line facing the table, and the recruits behind them again, with the whole regiment forming the other two sides of the square, and the band a little way behind. The priest read a sort of short service and then the flag-bearer carried the regimental flag up to the table while the band played. After that the priest walked all down the line of officers with the basin of holy water in his hand, and dipping the bunch of leaves into it sprinkled them each on the forehead and held up the cross for them to kiss. When that was over the swearing-in of the new recruits began, and, as I had not yet been sworn in, I was one of them. We all stood at the salute and repeated the oath altogether, sentence by sentence after the priest, swearing loyalty to Serbia and King Peter, and after that we marched in single file past the table, removing our caps as we did so for the priest to sprinkle our foreheads, and then kissed the cross, the priest's hand, and, last of all, the regimental flag. It was a very impressive ceremony, winding up by the band playing the Serbian national anthem while we stood at the salute. All the officers came up and shook hands with me afterwards, and congratulated me on now being properly enrolled as a soldier in the Serbian army. We were getting very tired of the Adriatic coast, and now that we were feeling rested again we were anxious to be once more on the move and take the next step towards getting back to Serbia. Speculation was rife as to where we were going to be sent to be reorganized and refitted. No one knew for certain, and there were the wildest rumors about Algiers, France, or Alexandria, but at last the glad news came that we were really going, and to Corfu. But there was still a six or seven days' march to Valona, where the regiment was to embark. Doctors came round and every man was medically examined to see if he was fit for the march, as those who were not were to be embarked at Durazzo. We had heard that the road to Valona was very bad, and in some places knee-deep in mud and water, and nobody was very anxious for the march if he could go from Durazzo, so one and all declared that they had rheumatism, or else sore feet. But eventually only a small percentage, among them sixty men from the fourth company, and about half a dozen officers, from the regiment were declared to be unfit. I was perfectly fit, but, as I was told I might do whatever I liked, I thought I might as well embark at Durazzo with those from my own company. So on the third of February we left our camp and went into Durazzo to wait for the steamer, as it was uncertain which day she would sail. I and some of the officers who were not on duty took rooms in the town, and there we had to wait for four days. We found some difficulty in feeding ourselves. There seemed to be hardly anything to buy. And what there was was at famine prices, and our Serbian ten-franc notes were only worth three and a half Greek or Italian francs. We had to pay fifty francs for a bottle of common red wine, which anywhere else would have cost a franc. One day some Italian doctors invited us to lunch at their hospital. They were most excellent hosts, and it was a very large and merry luncheon party. Hardly any two people could talk the same language, and English, French, 
German, Spanish, Italian, and Serbian got all mixed up together in a sort of Esperanto of our own. Every day, as regularly as clockwork, between half-past ten and eleven, we had an Austrian aeroplane raid, and occasionally in the afternoon as well, and we got so used to them that if we did not hear the first bomb in time, we used to gaze up into the sky and wonder why they were so late. But the worst raid was when we were actually embarking. Embarking is always a tedious business, and is always inseparably connected in my mind with hours of standing about on your own weary feet, like a flock of tired sheep, in weather that is always either too hot or too cold, or else raining, patiently waiting for orders. We were embarked on large flat barges, and sent off to two or three small Italian steamers in the harbour. The one that I was on was crammed with men, and we had just got alongside the steamer when an aeroplane came exactly overhead. We made a fairly big mark with the large crowded barge alongside the steamer, and it passed over us three times, dropping bombs all around as if they were shelling peas. Backwards and forwards it came, columns of water shooting up, now fifty yards to the right, now a little to the left, showing where the bombs hit the water harmlessly, one of them barely clearing a hospital ship at anchor. Every moment it seemed as if the next one might drop in the middle of our barge, but we were pretty well seasoned to anything by now, and, whatever may have been our inside feelings, we sat still and stolidly watched sudden death hovering over our heads in the blue sky, but it didn't seem somehow like playing the game when we couldn't retaliate at all. The captain of the Italian steamer got so exasperated that he shouted that he was not going to have his steamer sunk on our account, and that we were to sheer off as he would not take us on board at all. So our tug towed us back to the pier for further orders, and we were eventually sent off to another steamer. I and the two officers I was with in the end found ourselves embarked on one steamer, with most of the men from our own regiment on another, and our servants and all our luggage on a third. By that time it was about one o'clock, and, as we had been standing about in the hot sun since five a.m., and had had nothing to eat, we began to feel as if we should like some breakfast, so we were anything but pleased to be told upon inquiry that nobody could get anything to eat on that ship, neither officers nor men. "'Now then, Corporal,' said my company commander to me, "'you talk French. Go and see what you can do.' So I obediently went off to hunt up the military commander of the ship. He first informed me that there was no food on the boat, and that nobody could get anything until eight o'clock that evening, and seemed to be inclined to let the matter go at that. But I was not going to take that answer back if I could help it. So I told him that I didn't think much of his way of treating his English allies, whereupon, having turned that over in his mind, he said I could have something alone. Of course that was no use. So, after a little more persuasion, I finally got him to order the steward to serve dinner to the two officers and myself in the saloon in about an hour, as soon as it could be got ready, while waiting for it we could have some coffee, if I could get anybody to make it for me. I accordingly went round to the galley and interviewed the cook, who informed me that the man who made the coffee was asleep in his bunk, and I couldn't wake him. "'Oh, can't I?' I said, in the words of the man when told by the steward that he could not be sick in the saloon. "'You'll see if I can't.' "'Are you an officer?' he inquired, with that sort of veiled impertinence that the lower-class Italians and Greeks are such past masters of." "'No, I am not,' I snapped. "'I am a corporal. Now which is that coffee-man's cabin?' And, on it being pointed out to me, 
I beat such a devil's tattoo on the door with my riding-whip that in half a minute a very tousled and sleepy head appeared, and inquired what on earth was the matter. I told him I wanted three cups of coffee in the saloon at once, and he was so astonished that he got up forthwith and made them, and I went back in triumph to report, and felt rewarded on being told that I had done very well. The next morning we were transferred in Volona Harbour on to a big Italian steamer, a fine boat, where they treated us very well. We reached Corfu about 1 a.m., and disembarking began there and then. We hung on till the last, as we had nowhere to spend the night, our tents, blankets, etc., being on another boat, and I had not even an overcoat with me, and it was very cold, but at 3 a.m. we also had to go. We had been looking forward to Corfu as a sort of land flowing with milk and honey, with a magnificent climate and everything that was good, but our ardor was rather damped when we landed at that hour at a small quay, feet deep in mud, miles away from the town and about eight miles away from our camp, so we were told. We did not know in which direction our camp was, and, even had we got there, we would have been no better off without a tent or blankets, so we spent the remainder of the night sitting on a packing-case beside the sentry's fire, and I was glad enough to be able to borrow an overcoat from the Serbian officer in charge of the quay, who was just going off duty. There was one of the most beautiful sunrises I have ever seen. But under some circumstances you feel you would most willingly barter the most gorgeous panorama of scenery for a cup of hot tea. We had a long, hot walk the next morning till we found our division, where the sixty men from our company were camped, pending the arrival of the commandant of the regiment and the rest who were coming via Valuna. Corfu may be a lovely climate, and a healthy resort, and everything else that is delightful at any other time of the year, but it was a bitter blow to us when it rained for about six weeks without stopping after our arrival, added to which there was no wood, and campfires were forbidden. I suppose for fear that the men might take to cutting down the olive trees with which the island is covered. There was no hay at first for us to sleep on, and the incessant wet, combined with the effects of bully beef, on men whose stomachs were absolutely destroyed by months of semi-starvation, was largely responsible for the terrible amount of sickness and very high mortality among the troops during the first month of our stay there. This was especially the case among the boys and young recruits, who, less hardy than the trained soldiers, were completely broken down by their late hardships, and died by thousands on the hospital island of Vito. They could not be buried on the small island dying as they were at the rate of one hundred and fifty a day, and the bodies were taken out to sea. The Serbs are not a maritime nation, and the idea of a burial at sea is repugnant to them. I heard one touching story. An old man came to the island to see his son, but he had died the day before. Where is his grave? he asked, that I may tell my old wife I saw his last resting place. We had seven sons. Six were killed in the war and he was the seventh and youngest. The kind-hearted doctor lied bravely and well. That is it, he said, pointing to a little wooden cross among a few others, where some graves had been made one day when it was too rough for the tug to call. How could he tell the poor old father that even then his son's body was lying out on the wooden jetty, waiting to be carried out to his nameless grave in the blue Ionian Sea? We found there had been some hitch in the commissariat arrangements, and there was no food for our sixty men. 
we bought them some bread the next day but bread was three francs a loaf and a third of a loaf to a man with nothing else was not enough to keep them going while endless red tape was being unwound before their proper rations came along they never made a complaint but though we could have bought bread for ourselves it nearly choked us with the men standing round silently watching and wondering what we were going to do for them on the second morning seeing an empty motor lorry coming along i had a sudden inspiration and boarded it dashing down the steep bank to the road telling them that i would be back in the evening from town with something for them and taking an orderly with me it was about fifteen miles drive into the town of corfu and i tramped about all day in the pouring rain from one official to another from the english to the french from the french to the serbians and back again to the french till i was heartily sick of it and had i had the money i would have bought the stuff in town and had done with it there was plenty of bread at the bakery but of course they could not give it to me without a proper requisition which apparently i could not sign because i was not authorized to do so it was getting towards evening and i was beginning to despair and was thinking of doing the best i could with a hundred francs i had borrowed when i thought i would have one more try with the french authorities i was wet through myself as i had had no time to stop for a coat when the lorry came along and had been too busy and too worried to get anything to eat all day but anyhow this time i managed to pitch them such a pitiful tale of woe about the sufferings of the men and the awful time i was having trying to get them something to eat that i quite softened their hearts and they said they would give me what i wanted without any further signature but that i must not make a precedent of this unofficial way of doing business i was overjoyed and sent my orderly off at once to hunt up a carriage and we returned to camp in triumph about nine o'clock with a whole sackful of bread another of tinned beef and two large earthenware jars of wine which i bought on the way there were plenty of the men waiting when they heard my carriage arrive to dash down to the road and carry the stuff up to the camp and there was great rejoicing over the success of my expedition i was soon warm and dry and having some supper myself the men were all right so far but another day's short rations would certainly have seen some of them sick the question of transport was fearfully difficult and the french and english authorities were working night and day to feed the troops and of course they could never have got through the work if things had not been done in order so i was duly grateful that under special circumstances they let me carry out such an unauthorized raid about a week later the rest of the company arrived at ten o'clock one evening and a sergeant proudly told me that our fourth company were all very fit and not a man sick or fallen out we moved to another camp up in the hills a nice place but very far from anywhere though i found that i could get about anywhere i wanted to on the motor lorries which used to come in with bread the asc drivers of these lorries must have had a hard time at first the roads were very bad and the weather shocking and they were working sixteen hours a day carrying supplies but they were full of pity for the deplorable condition of the serbian soldiers and were willingly working night and day to alleviate it one of the english officers gave me a small italian tent in place of the little serbian bouviac one i had been sleeping in it was a capital little tent very light and absolutely waterproof my orderly built a foundation of stones about two feet high with the chinks filled in with earth and pitched the tent on the top of that so that it was quite high enough to stand up in and also to hold a camp bed and a rubber bath and he then made a nice little garden and planted it with shrubs and flowers with a little wall all round ornamented with red bully beef tins with plants in them 
and it looked awfully nice. The thing we missed most was not being able to have any fires to sit round. One day I came back on a lorry containing a load of wood, intended for somewhere else, but I had got past any scruples about commandeering anything where my own company was concerned, so I persuaded the driver to drop a few big logs off on the road at the nearest point to our camp, and we had at least one small fire for some time afterwards, and anybody who liked could come and boil his billy-can and make his tea at that. The Serbian Relief Fund was short-handed and very busy, and I obtained permission to leave the camp for a few weeks and take up my quarters in town to give them a hand. Several shiploads of stuff had just come in, and everything had to be landed on the quay on lighters, and then removed from there at once, as the quay could not be blocked up, to one or other of their two storehouses, which were at opposite ends of the harbour. One of these storehouses had only just been acquired, and, as it was about six inches deep in coal dust, it all had to be scrubbed and cleaned out for the arrival of fresh bales, and that was my first job. I got a gang of Serbian soldiers, and we had a strenuous day's work with the very inefficient tools at our disposal, but we managed by the evening to get everything shipshape and the floors clean, though we all got rather damp and coal-dusty in the process. The quay was a most interesting place, though I should have enjoyed the work more if it had not poured steadily all day and every day, as there was no cover anywhere. French, English, and Serbians were all working there together, each trying to be the first to seize upon labor and transport, both by water and land, for the particular job he was responsible for. There were a number of ships in the harbor waiting to be unloaded, and everyone was working as hard as he could, and things were considerably complicated by the fact that hardly one of them could speak the other's language. It was quite a usual thing to find an Englishman, who could not speak French, trying to explain to a French official that he wanted a fatigue party of Serbian soldiers to unload a certain lighter, and neither of them being able to explain to the said fatigue party, when they had got them, what it was they wanted them to do. There was always a company of Serbian soldiers for work on the quay, and a fresh relay of men came on at 6 a.m., at midday, and at 6 p.m., and you had to be there sharp on time if you wanted your men, or else you would find that they had all been snapped up by someone else. As I could speak French and enough Serbian to get along very well, most of my work was on the quay, and I was often called in to act as interpreter. As I did not want to get down there at 6 a.m., however, I got a friendly English corporal, who had to be on duty then, to get twice as many men as he wanted himself, and then give me half of them when I came down. I was rather afraid of the English Tommies at first, and thought they would be sure to laugh at a woman corporal, but, on the contrary, there was nothing they would not do to help me, and the French soldiers were just the same. I was superintending the unloading of some goods from a lighter one day, which all had to be transferred to another lighter, and taken across to the warehouse that evening. We were all very tired and wet, and the men were slacking off, and it didn't seem, at the rate we were going, as if we should get through before nine or ten o'clock that night. The Serbian sergeant tried to buck them up, but the men were fed up, and were just doing about as little as they possibly could. It was worse than useless to bully a Serbian soldier, if he doesn't want to do anything. So, as I wanted to get back to the hotel to dinner, I went on quite another tack. I told them I had been working for them all day since early in the morning, and was tired and hungry, and that if they were going to spend another three hours over the job, I should get no dinner. The effect was magical. They all at once got terribly worried on my account, 
began to work like steam, and in an hour we had the whole thing done, and they were inquiring in a brotherly manner if it was all right and if I would be in time for dinner now. All these poor fellows working down on the quay had had their uniforms taken away from them and burnt, and had been provided with a blue corduroy suit for working in. Their old ones, though dirty, were warm, and their new ones were very thin, and in most cases they had hardly any underclothes, so whenever I had a gang of men working under me down at the warehouse, I used to fit them out with warm sweaters, etc., of which we had plenty, out of one of the broken bales. I used to make them work hard for a couple of hours, and then sit down for five minutes and have a cigarette, and then go on again for another hard spell. The Serbian sergeants used to be very much amused at my methods, but I always found they answered very well. They were always keen to be on my gang, and everyone said I got more work out of them than anyone else could. There were a lot of new English uniforms, but the French authorities would not issue them unless there were enough underclothes to go with them, and these they were short of. However, I got a promise of underclothes from the Serbian Relief Fund, and then my troubles began. First, I had to get a paper signed by the English, saying they would give them if the French approved, then another signed by the French that they did approve and would give the uniforms, then one signed by the Serbian Minister of War, then back to the French again to be countersigned, then back to the Minister of War, then to the Serbian warehouse, who refused to give them because I hadn't got somebody else's signature, and so on and so on. To cut a long story short, it took three whole days walking round Corfu in the pouring rain before I could get all those papers sufficiently signed, including three visits to the Minister of War, and even then the transport remained to be found, as the motor lorries were fully occupied carrying bread. I had airily promised the French that I thought the English authorities could give me the transport, so I went up to them, and they said they would see what they could do. "'How much stuff have you?' inquired the officer in charge. Three thousand two hundred and fifty uniforms,' I replied, "'and the same number of vests and pants.' "'Well, that doesn't tell me anything,' he said. "'I want to know the bulk and weight. You're no good as a corporal if you can't tell me that. Let me know exactly by eleven o'clock tomorrow morning, and I'll see what I can do.' Here was a poser, for— though I said at once that I would let him know, I had not the faintest idea of how to work it out. But fortunately bethought myself of my sheet anchor, the big English corporal on the quay, who always seemed to be able to solve any difficulty, and, sure enough, he did it for me, and I telephoned the required information. In the end I got the stuff loaded onto a barge and took it myself to a point about two miles from my camp, whence it was carried up by a company, and we had the proud distinction of being the first regiment to be fitted out in new, clean, English khaki uniforms. When not on the quay, there was plenty to do in the warehouses, sorting out the bales, or taking them across the harbour in our little tug, which was quite a journey, but I eventually got a chill and had to lay off for a bit, as the result of one wetting too many. I used to go back to the camp every Saturday afternoon and Sunday, and I always managed to take a couple of cases of something— generally given me by the Serbian Relief Fund, either things for the ambulance or condensed milk or golden syrup for the men. Condensed milk was very much appreciated, as it meant that they each got a big bowl of café au lait for breakfast for three mornings, whereas, as a rule, they don't have anything until lunch. One day an incident occurred which touched me greatly. The non-commissioned officers and men of the fourth company formed a committee among themselves and drew up an address 
which they presented me with, and which a man in the regiment who knew English afterwards translated for me as literally as possible. An English major, to whom I once showed it, told me if that were his he should value it more than a whole string of medals, and as that is how I feel about it, coming as it did spontaneously from my own men, I put the translation in here. To the high esteemed Miss Flora Sands, Corfu. Esteemed Miss Sands, Soldiers of the 4th Company, 1st Battalion, 2nd Infantry Regiment, Kenyaza Michaelia, Moravian Division, 1st Call, Reserves, touched with your nobleness, wish with this letter to pay their respects, and thankfulness to you, have chosen a committee to hand you this letter of thankfulness. Miss Sands, Serbian soldier is proud because in his midst he sees a noble daughter of England, whose people is an old Serbian friend, and to-day their armies are arm-in-arm arm fighting for common idea, and you, Miss Sands, should be proud that you are in position to do a good, to help a Serbian soldier, Serbian soldier will always respect acts of your kindness, and deep down in his heart will write you kind acts and remember them for ever. Few months have passed since you came among us, and you shared good and bad with us. During this time you have often helped us to pass through hardships, buying food for us, and financially. Thanking you in the name of all the soldiers, we are greeting you with exclamation. Long life to our ally England! long life to serbia long life to their heroic armies long life to noble miss sands now redniks sergeant majors milkontia simic rango milosevic podna redniks sergeants milislav stemenkovic yanachko todorovic bozadar milankovic kaplars corporals vladimir stankovic milan jovanovic Dragutin Rangilovich, Alexa Milosevic, Zafir Arsic, Vajnitsi, Soldiers, Milovoye Pavlovich, Miloran Taskovich, Rangel Miladinovich, Dragoljub Milovanovich, Alexander Yukovich. Fourth Company, First Battalion, Second Infantry Regiment, Number 1024, Official Stamp. To Miss Sands, Corporal, volunteer of this company please receive this little but from heart of my soldiers declaration of thankfulness for all for help that you have done for them until now and in time when they are far away from dear ones and loving ones at home to their wishes and declaration i am adding mine and exclaim long life to our dear ally england long life to heroic serbian army commander of the company Janachko A. Jovich, 13-26, February, 1916, Ipsos, Corfu. End of chapter 9